You're listening to a message from Third Church in Richmond, Virginia, where we believe we are called together for the renewal of all things through Jesus Christ. To learn more about Third or how you can get involved with our community, please check out our website, thirdrva.org. That's T-H-I-R-D-R-V-A dot org. Thanks for listening. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we do praise you, loving God, that you have revealed, shown, poured out your grace to us through the person of Jesus. And we praise you that all of Scripture bears witness to him. So we pray now that as we turn to your word, that you would illumine the reading and preaching of your word, that we would not be those who just walk away unchanged, but that we would respond to your word with obedience and love. We pray this in Christ's name and for his sake. Amen. Please be seated. Good morning, church family. Again, it's great to be with you here. Happy Easter, this fourth Sunday of Easter. Um, We're in this sermon series called Our Resurrection Hope, where we're really trying to take seriously uh, the the claim of the New Testament that the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead is the most important event to have ever happened in the history of the world and has truly changed everything. So we're going to spend this season of Eastertide and into Pentecost uh, going deep into the impact, the cosmic, world-changing impact of the resurrection. Last week, we looked at the personal impact of the resurrection, how it affects and changes us personally. Today, we're looking at how the resurrection changes our experiences of suffering. Um, and so we're going to turn to a great passage, one of my favorites in 1 Peter chapter 1. So if you want to open your Bibles there, 1 Peter chapter 1, uh, verses 3 through 9. Our reader this morning is one of our recent graduates. Uh, we're celebrating lots of our graduates today, but Arjane Avula just graduated from Piedmont, and she's going to UVA in the fall. Go, yay, Arjane! <laughs> And Arjuna is our scripture reader this morning, so let's hear as she reads God's word from 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 9. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you, who through faith, are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. In all this, you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come so that the proven genius of your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. For you are receiving the end result of your faith, the salvation of your souls. This is the word of the Lord. (laughs) Thanks be to God. There's a city in southern Ukraine called uh, Mykolaiv. I hope I'm pronouncing that right. And there in that little city, the signs of war are everywhere. The streets are lined with um, barricades made of sandbags. People are evacuating because of the Russian shelling. And men with assault rifles ride through the streets in the backs of trucks. And yet, there, just a few weekends ago, on Easter weekend, there was a little bakery on the corner run by a woman named Tatiana Krachenchko. And that weekend, she had baked rows and rows of beautifully decorated little Easter cakes that she had lined, displayed uh, in her bakery window. 
And when she was interviewed by the Associated Press, this is what she said. She said, even though we are ordered to shelter in place right now, we will not stop celebrating Easter. People are buying the cakes, toasting to Easter, gathering for worship. She said, we will defiantly celebrate Easter. Things are very dark, but we must do this because we believe that in the end, hope wins. We've been learning about the very powerful implications of the resurrection for all of life, that it truly changes everything. But perhaps there's no area of life that the resurrection makes the biggest difference in than when it comes to how human beings experience pain and suffering. And at first glance, you might think, well, what, what difference? Right? Jesus rose from the dead, but so what? People are still suffering. Children are still dying. Bombs are still dropping. War is still waging. And in your own life, you might ask, well, how has the resurrection done anything for my chronic pain, my failing marriage, my struggling child, my sorrows, my losses? What difference does Easter make? What does it mean to say that the resurrection changes our experience of pain and suffering? What does it mean to celebrate Easter in the middle of a war zone? Well, that's the question we want to answer. And that's the question I think that Peter answers pretty remarkably for us in this little passage. So we want to look at what Peter says about how the resurrection changes our experience of suffering. And he says at least these three things. He says, first, it gives us hope for our suffering. It gives us meaning in our pain. And it gives us companionship in the struggle. So let's look at those things. First, let's look at how the resurrection gives us hope for our suffering. A few years ago, um, a professor at Columbia University named Andrew Dalbanco wrote a book called The Real American Dream, A Meditation on Hope, which is really interesting. He's an atheist professor uh, writing a book on hope, and his basic thesis is that the basis for all human flourishing, both personal and collective, is hope, that no human being or society can flourish without hope. He writes in one place this, hope is the way we overcome the lurking suspicion that all our getting and spending amounts to nothing more than fidgeting while we wait for death. All right, thanks, Andrew. That was a great positive quote there. Um, and it's a pretty heavy way to say it, but I mean, you, you get the point. What he's saying is that if you don't, the only way you're going to be able to get up in the morning, the only way you're going to be able to kind of press through every day, especially when you're going through really difficult times, is that you need hope. You need a vision for some sort of positive future that your life is heading towards. In fact, what we believe, I know this is kind of a bold statement, but what we believe about the future is the main determiner of how we process our present experiences. What we believe about the future is the main way that we process our present experiences. So I, I know I've used this illustration with you before, but imagine two guys um, who are given the same terrible dead-end job. They got to work, you know, 10, 12 hours a day digging a ditch or tweaking a widget or something like that. It's just meaningless, boring, terrible job back-breaking job, right? Same job, same situation, but there's only one difference between them is that the first guy is offered $15,000 a year after a year of work, and the second guy is offered $15 million after a year of work. Now, same job, same circumstances. Do you think they will have a different experience of their work? Oh, you bet they will, right? The first guy, probably going to quit after a month, 
The second guy, you know, he's like whistling while he works, right? Like, I mean, this is like the greatest job ever. Why? What's the difference? The difference is not what they're doing every day. The difference is their hope. The difference is the outcome that determines their experience of the present moment. So it's not your circumstances that make you feel the way you feel or affect the way you live. It's your, it's your hope. Your believed-in future completely determines how you process and experience your current circumstances. Your life is shaped by your hope. Now, the problem is, is that most of our hopes are not very durable. Most human hopes are highly vulnerable to suffering and loss. And so whether it's success or money or having a really healthy body or having you know, a wonderful, loving family or some awesome vacation, or a great retirement, or the latest home project, so many of the things that we put our hopes in as human beings are vulnerable. They can be shaken and undercut by circumstances, time, trends, and certainly death. Our hopes are too fragile to sustain our lives and our world. That's why Viktor Frankl, the great Jewish psychotherapist, said this, who survived the death camps, by the way, Life only has meaning if we have a hope that suffering and even death cannot destroy. Well, how do you get a hope like that? Well, let's look at our text. Peter's writing to a group of people who are suffering. We're not sure how or why. Um, It does say in verse 6, they are suffering grief and all kinds of trials. We know at the time that being a Christian was illegal, and so they're likely experiencing... um, persecution or, or even torture or imprisonment, certainly the threat of death. But let's just face it, even just being alive in the first century pretty much sucked, right? Because, you, you know, life was terrible. You could die of a cold or an abscessed tooth. These people were living in abject poverty. Um, there was very little they could rely on, hardly any certainty, so much fragility, nothing to count on. And yet, Peter writes in verse 3, "'Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ,' In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into what? A living hope. That means a hope that cannot die. A hope that can't be taken away. A hope that is invulnerable to circumstances. He says in verse 4, an inheritance that can't listen, can't perish, can't spoil, can't fade. He's saying despite the incredible fragility of your circumstances, despite the fact that you don't even know if you're going to make it through tomorrow, here's what you have, a living, indestructible hope, a hope that absolutely guarantees that your future is beautiful and good. How is this possible? Well, he says in verse 4, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. When Jesus rose from the dead... God conquered the grave. He broke the power of death. And Jesus rose, remember what we said a few weeks ago, rose as what? The first fruit, the foretaste, the appetizer of the coming resurrection of all things that God is in the midst of bringing about. His resurrection is the promise of a new resurrected world, a world without death or sorrow, pain, injustice, poverty, cancer, or death. The resurrection of Jesus is a promise of the final redemption of our suffering, that even the worst things, the most horrific things that have happened will somehow be made right. This is a living, certain hope that the resurrection promises that nothing, not even death, can destroy. 
And so the first thing that the resurrection gives us is a hope that nothing can touch, a hope that is invulnerable to circumstance that even death cannot destroy. It gives you a vision for a positive future. It guarantees the end. I feel a little embarrassed admitting this, but sometimes when I'm reading a a really um, thrilling novel or one that makes me kind of nervous or anxious, like as things get more tense, what I do is I skip to the end of the book and read the last two pages. I know that's kind of terrible, but but I, I just want to make sure that my favorite character isn't dead, right? I just want to make sure that everything turns out. Because once I know that, once I know that he's okay, then no matter how stressful the plot gets, I know that in the end, everything is going to be okay. And y'all, in quite literal way, it's almost like God has, by resurrecting Jesus Christ in the middle of history, it's like he has flipped to the end of the book and revealed the end of the story when we're right in the middle of the plot. You see how he's done that? That in rising Jesus from the dead, he gives us a glimpse of the final ending. And, 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 and what does that, that do for us? Well, it doesn't mean you understand everything you're going through. It doesn't mean all of your questions are answered. It doesn't mean that life is any less painful or perplexing than it often is. But what it does do is it gives a peace and a poise in the midst of even the worst circumstances to recognize there is actually a plot to your storyline and an ending to which all your sorrows point. Jerry Sitzer is a theology professor at Whitworth College in Washington. And about 25 years ago, he was driving home one night with his whole family from an event. And in his car was his wife, his mother, and all of his children. And a drunk driver crossed over the center line, hit their minivan head on. And in that moment, his wife, his mother, and daughter were all tragically killed. Several months later, he was driving with his son, his little son, who was sitting in the back seat. And suddenly, just out of the blue, his son said, Dad, if mom is in heaven and she can see us, then how can she be happy if she sees that we're so sad? And Jerry, he writes about this in his book, A Grace Disguised, amazing book. And he he says, the Holy Spirit just gave him the words in the moment. He said, Well, because she sees the way the story ends and is happy. Now, I want you to know this. I know Jerry personally. I know for some of you, this might sound like a super spiritualization of trauma or some like, you know, canvassing over um, horrific pain. But I want you to know that um, that's not the case. Jerry spent years in darkness, years, um, years pulling his life back together. And yet, yet, the fact that he was able to hold on to that kind of hope in the midst of this tragedy suggests that it is actually possible to claim hope even in the worst of circumstances that sometimes it is so hard to believe that there is any clear plot in the lives that we're living, but in the Christian story, there is no ambiguity about the ending. It is the power of God in the resurrection, the promise, as Samwise says to Bilbo in Lord of the Rings, 
everything sad will come untrue. So don't you see, family, your life is determined by your hope. And if your only hope, if your hope is as narrow as this tiny frame of 80 to 90 years that we all live in, you'll never make it. You'll never make the next scan, uh, the next scare, the next struggle, the next uncertainty. But the resurrection of Jesus gives us an indestructible hope that God loves us, he loves the world, that he's waging war on evil, he has already struck the death blow, he is making everything new, and one day all will be well. That is the larger story that now the resurrection frames for all of our sorrows. That's the hope that we have in our suffering. Second, though, the resurrection also gives meaning, meaning in our pain. It's you might be saying, hey, man, that's nice to know the end of the story, but what about <laughs> living in the here and now, right? Does this just mean that Christians just wait around one day for everything to be made right, but in the meantime, we just have to, like, stumble along in this insufferable existence? No, because remember what we've said each week. The resurrection is not just hope for the future. It is hope from the future that is meant to transform our present experience. And this is what Peter's getting at in verses 6 and 7. He says this, and this you greatly rejoice... He's talking about your suffering. For now, through a little while, you may have to suffer grief and all kinds of trials. These have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith, of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. So listen to what he's saying. Peter's saying something really interesting, that the grief and trials they're going through are not just like hardships that they have to grit their teeth through that one day God will erase, but that He's actually suggesting that they're purposeful, that God is producing something in and through their sorrows. In this case, he uses the word refining, probably drawing from the idea of how a metal worker uses fire to refine metal. These trials, he suggests, are God's actually using them to, to shape you, refine and sharpen your faith, deepen your soul, accomplish God's work in you, that through Jesus and your connection to him, your struggles are actually transforming you into a person of greater glory. Paul says things like this also all the time. In 2 Corinthians 4, he says this, we know that the one who raised the Lord Jesus from the dead, that's what God's done in the past, will also raise us with Jesus and present us to you himself. That's what God will do in the future. But then look at the present. He says, therefore, do not lose heart. Though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed Day by day, for our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. He's saying, just like Peter said, that our suffering, though painful, is not meaningless. Look, the word he uses, it's actually achieving something for us. In fact, I know this is hard to stomach, but Paul even says there are certain gifts you can only receive through suffering. There are certain joys you can only claim in sorrow. And there are certain opportunities you can only capture in pain. And when it comes to certain and some of the best gifts that God wants to give, unfortunately, there's no other way to get them than through the valley of sorrow. How can this be? Well, it's only through the resurrection because the resurrection redeems suffering, right? I mean, talk about something that looked like the most meaningless and horrible event in the history of the world, the Son of God crucified in the hands of sinners. And yet, God, through that inexplicable tragedy, was bringing about the greatest good for humanity in the world. But here's the key. The joy and redemption and all of the good things that Jesus brought, 
those could only happen not in spite of the cross, but through it. Not in spite of the pain, but through the tragedy, through the brokenness, through the sorrow. And so what that means, the logic of this is, is that now connected to the resurrected Jesus in our everyday lives, that same pattern of death and resurrection, of redemptive suffering, can be at work in us. So in a society that sees suffering as meaningless and to be avoided at all costs, Christians are these strange people who can now experience suffering as deeply meaningful, potent, with the opportunity for God's resurrection work to happen, bringing about good and glory that is only possible through the sorrow. Makoto Fujimura is a Japanese-American artist that uses the Japanese tradition of kintsuji in his art. Kintsuji is the art of repairing broken pieces of pottery with lacquer dusted with gold. So here's, a, here's an image of one of these pieces of art. A kintsuji master will take a broken piece of pottery um, and will create a restored piece using gold and lacquer that makes the pot through the forged broken pieces more valuable and beautiful than it was at first. So Mako, who is a Christian, wrote, writes this, just as the gold fills the fissures in kintsuji, our wounds become the places of redemption, our sorrows become the places where God works the greatest beauty. So here, the beauty doesn't come in spite of the brokenness, it, becomes, it comes through it. The shattering becomes agents of glory. So do you see how hopeful this is? The resurrection of Jesus is not just hope for the future one day, that God is going to one day redeem your suffering. It is actually means that connected to the risen Jesus, the pattern of death and resurrection is at work in our suffering, that every pain, every sorrow, every struggle becomes an opportunity for our souls to be matured, our faith to be strengthened, our experience of God's love to deepen, and our lives to become more useful to others. This does not mean that Christians are masochists. We do not seek out pain. No one would choose the furnace of trauma or loss. It simply means that the resurrection of Jesus guarantees that brokenness can bring the greatest beauty. I've certainly seen this in my own life. Um, I've been open about the fact that I've struggled with um, sometimes pretty severe depression and anxiety for the last three decades of my life. It's certainly been the greatest thorn in my life. And yet, I will also admit that it has been the thing that has most kept me close to Jesus Christ, clinging to God's mercy, growing in compassion and empathy for others. The struggle has made me a better pastor so that I can come alongside others in similar kinds of pain. The resurrection of Jesus transforms our suffering so that it becomes meaningful. Now, this doesn't happen automatically. Uh, we all know people who have suffered and have not come out better, but come out worse. Not come out a kintsuji bowl, but come out a pile of shattered shards. So how do we work through our pain and suffering redemptively, not destructively? Well, Psalm 126 has a lovely image. It says, those who sow with tears will reap with songs of joy. Those who go out weeping, carrying seed to sow, will return with songs of joy, carrying sheaves with them. This is a very beautiful image of people who are crying and who are taking their tears and sowing them into God's earth as seed. 
They're planting their tears and receiving back a harvest of joy. It suggests that there is a way to weep. There's a way to suffer. There's a way to cry that produces greater joy and happiness in the long run. It's like the psalmist is saying to us, don't waste your tears. Yes, life is horrible at times, but don't waste your sorrows. Don't toss away the seed of your tears. Sow them as seed for a greater harvest. Now, in and through the resurrection of Jesus, every sorrow can be a seed that grows into a richer experience of God's comfort. Every pain can be a seed that grows into a deeper soul and a stronger faith. Every tragedy is a seed that can lead us to encounter God's resurrection story, to see how he turns a heartbreak into something beautiful. And the challenge is, of course, that instead of lashing out in anger or turning inward in self-pity or distracting yourself to avoid all pain, this means naming your sorrows honestly, sowing them into the love of God in prayer in lament, in worship, in Christian community, quietly trusting that God is bringing about a resurrection somehow and that one day, whether now or in a few weeks or months or in years or even in the new creation, you will indeed see the harvest. You will see how God's redeeming work has come to pass. So you see the resurrection means, this is, this is amazing, the resurrection has transformed suffering so that it can actually become meaningful. Does this mean you're an optimist? No, Christians aren't optimists. Like we, we take, actually, we take more seriously the, the reality of evil in the world more than anybody else. We're not optimists. We don't see the silver lining in everything. But does this mean we're pessimists? No, no, because Jesus has risen from the dead and hope is on the way. So if we're not pessimists, we're not optimists, what are we? We're resurrectionists, you know? We, we, it means that every moment and every sorrow and every pain and every tragedy, we are looking for, anticipating, waiting for the turn, waiting for the ways God is at work to bring his resurrection hope. God gave me an opportunity to do this while I was writing this sermon. Friday's my sermon writing day. I study and prep during the week, and then I wake up on Friday and I write. And uh, I came down on Friday morning to make coffee and walked into my kitchen and turned on the light and water is pouring through the ceiling of my kitchen. Um, covering the hardwood floors, you know. Um, a, pipe, a pipe had burst and, you know, kitchen's being destroyed. So, um, so I spent my Friday writing a sermon at the table while two plumbers were in the kitchen trying to, to, to you know, fix my house. And I, and I was so mad, I was cursing while I was writing a sermon. That's your pastor, okay? <laughs> oh, what a holy brother I am, not, you know? Um, but it was funny because, you know, I, sometimes preachers have to convert themselves, so I had to do that. Um, I felt like God was saying to me, okay, kid, put this into practice, right? What would it mean to approach this situation as a resurrectionist? Well, I changed my perspective. If the goal in life is to be happy, pain-free, and have as much money as possible, then this is a really bad day. <laughs> uh, but if the goal in life is to become more like Jesus Christ, to glorify God in all things, and to be united to Jesus in his death and resurrection, can those things be accomplished in a day like that? Oh, you betcha. So I attempted this to ask, how in this frustrating experience might God be bringing about a resurrection? What fruit might he be bearing? What patience, what faith, 
self-control, long-suffering, what opportunity to trust his provision, what opportunity to see him show up in surprising ways. In no way am I suggesting that pipes bursting in our house is comparable to what some of you are suffering or the degree of suffering in the world. I am simply saying that it is possible to put the resurrection lens to work in the greatest tragedies and the smallest annoyances that through our connecting to Jesus, no suffering is meaningless, no matter how big or how small. As the philosopher Nick Walterstor said, who lost a son in a climbing accident, the valley of suffering is the veil of soul-making. Meaningful. So this is what the resurrection does. It gives us hope for our future. It gives us... Um, changes, it gives meaning in our pain. And the last thing it does, this is real brief, it gives us companionship in our struggle. If you've ever gone through something really hard, you probably know how meaningful it can be to have a really close friend walk with you in it, right? And yet, for those of you who've gone through something really awful, you know that no human being can ever know truly the depth of another person's pain. No matter how much the person loves you, no matter how much they care for you, there is always a dimension to suffering of pain that goes unknown, unheard, unseen, there is no loneliness like the loneliness of the one who suffers. But the resurrection changes even that. Look what Peter writes in verse 8. He says, though you have not seen him, you love him, and even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy, for you are receiving the end result of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Peter is saying something incredible. He says, the end result of our faith is that we would actually be in the presence of Jesus Christ. We would see him face to face. But he says you don't have to wait for that day, that now, because Jesus is risen and you've given the Spirit, we are at this moment receiving the end result of our faith. We see him, know him. Through the power of the Spirit, God brings the truth and power of that end-time experience of seeing Christ into our current experience right now. This is perhaps the most ordinary benefit of the resurrection, that we do not follow and believe in a dead Lord or a, 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 a religious leader who once lived in the past that we seek to emulate. The fact that we follow a risen Lord means that we actually have him with us even now. Jesus says this in Revelation. He says, I stand at the door and knock. Whoever hears my voice and opens the door will come and eat with me and I with him. This is a promise to, to believers. He says, I will come to you, eat with you, have fellowship, communion, intimacy. He's saying, and Peter says it too, that because Jesus is risen and the Spirit is given to us, we can have intimate communion with Jesus Christ, knowing him, knowing his love, right in the middle of our struggles and pain. Many Christians have written about this kind of experience of Jesus Christ, the living Jesus. John Owen was a Puritan in the 17th century who wrote much about this. He said there's two ways to see Jesus. One is you can die, and the other is that before you die, you can see him by faith. And he actually says this is possible, like through beholding the glory of Jesus, through meditating on him in scripture, through contemplating him in prayer, communing with him in silence, we actually behold the glory of Jesus. He writes in one place, there enters sometimes by the word and spirit into our hearts such a sense of the uncreated glory of God shining forth in Christ as effects insatiates the soul with ineffable joy. These moments of encountering and seeing and knowing Jesus Christ, being known by him, 
are not necessarily frequent. And yet for those who suffer, they are likely because Jesus loves those, his children, who are in pain. In my own life, I could just say personally that the most intimate and powerful experience of being with Jesus came in the, one of the most dark moments of my life. And the experience of seeing him and knowing him and loving him and being known and loved by him was so overwhelming that it overwhelmed the dark. And it was a place that I returned to again and again and that I will never stop returning to until I die. I share this very personal thing, not as, you know, saying how spiritual I am. It's actually the opposite. It's an invitation to seek this kind of companionship with the risen Jesus. Maybe just start with simply meditating on the scripture, a gospel, simple gospel story, inserting yourself in this story. Explore different forms of prayer, like Lexio Divina and centering prayer and silent prayer. I'll send more about that this week in my email. The point is that the resurrection of Jesus means you have the gift of companionship in your struggle. Jesus' heart is for the one who suffers. He is alive, and if you are in the valley, friends, he is coming for you. You have one with you who suffered the most horrific sorrows, now walking with you in the most intimate way possible. Through the resurrection, suffering now becomes a holy meeting place between Jesus and his people, a sacred room where you encounter him. So let me sum up. When it comes to our suffering, the resurrection of Jesus gives us at least these things. It gives us a certain hope, a guaranteed outcome to our story. It gives us meaning in our pain. It gives us the possibility to experience redemptive suffering in the midst of our sorrow. And it gives us companionship in our struggle. We have the living Jesus with us. Return with me in your imaginations to Easter weekend in Ukraine. Brothers and sisters celebrating and eating colorful cakes in the middle of a war zone. On that Easter weekend, President Zelensky gave his weekly Saturday night message to his people. And he said something very interesting. He said, today, my friends, is Holy Saturday. It is the day between crucifixion and resurrection. And this today is where we are. This is where we are. Between Friday and Sunday, between the day of death and the day of hope, between the already and the not yet, Jesus has already defeated death and evil, but the day of final triumph is not yet here. We live in the in-between, suspended between a fallen world and the new creation. This is where we live between Friday and Sunday. And so what do we do? We wait in hope. We trust the slow work of God. We commune with Jesus and his people. We sow our prayerful, honest tears into the loving hands of God. We wait, believing even when there is no sign of him anywhere, he is still at work, and we know the end of the story. We toast to life in the middle of the war. So in a world of war and pandemics and shootings, in a world of cancer and divorce, a world of depression and sorrow, let us move forward as resurrection people. Let us resist the temptation to bitterness. Let us honestly voice our sorrows to God and let us always hope in Jesus and the life of the world to come. Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. We thank you, Jesus, that you are the suffering risen Lord, that you are the lamb who was slain 
who is now reigning and promising a day when all will be well. Give us hope and power to be the resurrection people you've called us to be. We pray this in Christ's name.